Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JennaIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order. That's DISH, all caps, at JennaIngle.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie from quarantine day five hundred seven thousand and five. <laughs> I have to be honest. I keep forgetting it's not summer because I'm so introverted. It's like Same. typically my summer vacations are just like hanging out at home with my husband and my dog. I'm just watching Bravo all day and, um, you know, just <laughs> staying indoors. I keep forgetting it's not July. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I naturally default to a hermit-like state. <laughs> Humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> um, our puppy is fully vaccinated today, so we are now qualified to go to all the dog parks that are closed. So <laughs> that is... <laughs> Oh, man. But, you know, I could talk about my dogs all day. We know this. Um, Listen, there was one day, it was like 11 a.m., and I looked at Chris and I go, do you want to guess how many pictures Galit has sent me of her dogs today? Oh, my God. What was his guess? He guessed three, but the answer, five. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I really could talk about these dogs more. Should I upload some dog pics to our double redish? They're still waiting for the judgmental rabbi, so you have to start with him. Oh my god, I keep forgetting. Okay, I'll do one dog pic and the judgmental rabbi. Okay. (laughs) One dog pic of each dog. Oh my gosh. It's gonna be (laughs) double dog dish soon. (laughs) Starring Ruby and Luna. All right. What are we dishing about today? We are dishing about unpopular repertoire choices. And this topic was born out of um, a conversation that we had about unpopular life choices, like things that other people like that you personally don't like. And can I start with my like life unpopular dislikes? Okay. (laughs) I just want to clear this with everyone so that when, when, you know, we meet in real life, like nobody's like, here, take a cashew. Cashews, number one. (laughs) I hate cashews. I love cashews for the record, but I'll eat your share. Forever. You can have all of the cashews. When I discovered there was such a thing called cashew cheese, I threw Uh, up in my mouth. uh, I didn't know that's a thing. Cashew cheese? That's a thing. When I worked at the hippie grocery store... (laughs) People were buying cashews in bulk so they could make cashew cheese. And then I needed to take a break. 
That is like, that is a cheese abomination. (laughs) Do you have any like absolute dislikes that other people are like super jazzed about? I'm not into Harry Potter. Oh, that's one. That's a problem for me. Yeah. I read the first page like 800 times and was like, yeah. (laughs) For the record, I am a big fan of anything that gets people excited about reading. So I am definitely a supporter Uh of Harry Potter, but I found the the books to be um, pretty not engaging. Sorry. Sorry about it. Listen, I'll take your Harry Potter if you take my cashews. What about repertoire? What repertoire do you not like that other people go gaga for? I really don't like the Sanson Oboe Sonata. It just, it falls flat for me. I know it's like, it's nice, but you know, it's such a standard. I end up teaching it a lot because it's accessible um, for younger students. And I'm just like, oh God. Okay. Yay. Sanson. You'll love it. It's really great. (laughs) Um, Another one that I tend to not get that excited about, and um, this one's more controversial, is like Tchaikovsky symphonies. Whoa. I am a big fan of the Germans, um, and I am not as much into the Russians as so much. Whoa. That is a shockingly (laughs) unpopular opinion. I mean, I don't hate it, but I'm not going to choose it if I'm just listening for the fun of it. Oh, man. I hope you're feeling the judgment of (laughs) every (laughs) listener just bearing into your soul right now. (laughs) What are your unpopular repertoire choices? Well, I'm going to choose an entire genre and I'm mm-hmm. about to sound like a snob and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hate, with perhaps one exception, all music for band. I hate wind bands. I hate wind symphony. I hate wind ensemble, whatever name you call it. I don't like it. I don't like Sousa. <laughs> I don't like Granger. <laughs> I don't like what Eric Whitaker. I don't like it. I do like David Maslanka. I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask. We can play Maslanka chamber music instead, but like, I don't want to <laughs> play in band. Yeah, like, I, I'm not going to yuck someone else's yums. For sure. <laughs> but when you said that, my jaw dropped to my chest. I've even been told that the way I say it has some disdain that I go, banned. (laughs) (laughs) It has a lot of consonants in it. That's not entirely your fault. You know what? There's a positive in this, in that it lets your students feel free to develop their own likes and dislikes and think critically about the music that they perform. Well, and likewise, our listeners, and you guys had no shortage of opinions to share and we noticed very strong (laughs) very strong opinions for example Brahms in general I was so surprised because I thought that (laughs) Oboes are like obsessed with Brahms because doesn't he I'm obsessed with Brahms so many people wrote Brahms (laughs) I was like shocked We have Stephanie Hyde with the clapping emoji. Brahms is so overrated. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to agree with uh, Philip, who responded to someone's post of Brahms with, how dare you? I can't even. (laughs) Christina specifies Brahms chamber music. Sorry, clarinet players, but it's just too long and I get bored. I mean, okay. I mean, she has a point. Brahms chamber music is very long, <laughs> but I mean, the symphonies, it's the, that, that one hurts. That one hurts me. Jacob just can't get behind anything Brahms. No, nothing Brahms at all. Oh, poor Brahms. <laughs> um, any Mozart double read concerto? Uh, both. Actually, it would appear both are um, very disdained among our listeners. Uh, 
<laughs> Salma says Mozart bassoon concerto just doesn't stand out to me. And mm-hmm. Michelle says the Mozart bassoon concerto is way overplayed. Weber is so much more fun and interesting. Poor, poor Mozart. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> he died young. He's got all these bassoon players just mad at him and it would appear that oboes acknowledge that mozart is great but think the quartet deserves more love and attention than the concerto Mm -hmm. for example becca says mozart oboe concerto i just don't like it because we're asked to play it for everything all the time why not ask for the quartet sometimes or something completely different i edit i editorialized that a little bit becca Um, I also saw several oboes expressing frustration at the Duteu Sonata. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think that piece is cool, but I do get that playing it might be a whole nother ball of wax. (laughs) Well, I have a confession to make it. I've never performed it. Reed has a controversial opinion. Oboists are probably going to get out their knives and come at this bassoonist, but those Britain six metamorphoses after Ovid... I mean, I'll be honest, Pan is a really good starter piece for um, younger players. And I'm always like, yeah, do you want to like dive into some more movements? And they're usually like, maybe we can look at something else. (laughs) Michelle broke my heart a little bit by saying Mahler. Performing him is fine, though exhausting. But listening to Mahler, I fall asleep. I, oh, it broke my heart a little bit. That's all right. It it takes many types to make the world go round. We're all beautiful in God's eyes. Yeah, no shortage of uh, cranky double read players willing to share their opinion on stuff they just Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are beyond excited to talk to Philippe Tondre, international oboist. Welcome to the podcast, Philippe. Hello. Good afternoon. I mean, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) For us, it's the morning, yes. (laughs) Exactly. So so good morning. (laughs) Um, Would you start by talking to us about how you started playing the oboe? Well, it was a big failure, actually. Um, I started with the flute. Um, I think I was fascinated by the sound of the flute. And somehow, uh, yeah, I mean, I was fascinated by many things. I, I started with this instrument for about six months, and I was five years old. And somehow, it didn't really work out well. Um, I was struggling getting the sound out of the embouchure and I was not really, I was not having fun, you know, and as a kid, you need to have fun. It needs to, you know, it has to be like a, like a game. And, uh, um, I had the feeling I had to choose something else. So, um, in the middle of the year, which was about maybe because a year in, in Europe starts from September to June. So I, I went to the, to the secretary around January or February and I asked to change instrument if it was possible to change instrument and 
unfortunately, there was only one space left, and it was in the oboe class, so I had to take the oboe. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> so, so that's how I started with the oboe. And um, yeah, so I, I went to the to the guy. He was a, a very nice professor who was very charming, a uh, very funny guy, and just gave me a read, and I had to blow into the read, and uh, I could do it. So that's it. Stuck to the oboe. Could you walk us through your education and when you decided to pursue being an oboist professionally? Well, let's start where I just stopped. So I, I started the oboe at that time, so I was five. Uh, my first professor was Yves Cotres, who studied in Lyon. Um, so I started, started with him um, in Mulhouse, so that was in my hometown, Alsace, France. And um, uh, I think I stayed with him about 10 years, so when I was 15. I did my first degree at the Conservatoire, which was basically a, called a DEM, which is a, a, diploma of, a, a, a Diploma of Musical Studies, we call it. So I got that, and then I entered the, the Conservatoire de Paris, uh, where I started my studies just after that, so I was 15. There I entered the class of uh, David Walter and uh, pursued my studies for four years and I finished with um, with Maurice Bourg at the end, but that was not, uh, I, it was basically private lessons with Maurice. So uh, those were my three mentors, let's say. And of course, um, uh, many others uh, accompanied me uh, through my studies. So um uh, Jacques Tiss was very important for me. Jean-Louis Cathedrali was very important for me. Uh, Sébastien Gio at the beginning was important for me. So uh, there were many, many oboists who were around me to to help me. And uh, yeah, so I think the, the moment I decided to become a professional was probably when I was 14. Um, I met for the first time Jean-Louis Cathedrali, just talked about him before. He's a professor in Lyon and in Lausanne now. And uh, I remember he, him telling me that I had capacities on the instrument, but if I really wanted to push it and to become, you know, something more and uh, be able to make a living out of it, I would have to, well, basically boost <laughs> my working sessions and, and practice more, harder, uh, make lots of sacrifice. And um, so he basically gave me the choice. He said, yeah, you could do it, but you'll have to... Yeah, you have to start now. I mean, the earlier, the better. So I think that was the moment where I really decided, okay, let's let's give it a go. So I think I was 14. So it was just before entering Paris. You were 15, you said, when you entered the Paris Conservatoire? Yes, that's correct. Were you living on your own? Well, um, uh, on your own. Yeah, well, I left home, of course. I, I, you know, it, it was a big step, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. Mulhouse is a small city and, uh, you know, and I was kind of, uh, I've never seen a big city in my life before, so Paris was uh, was a big deal. Um, but I was in the Conservatoire, so there's a special section in the Conservatoire, it's called the Internat, the Internat, where you stay as a, as a, basically as an, um, and still undergraduate, so... Um, everybody who's under 18 has the chance to stay there. So it's very structured. There's mm-hmm. no, um, you can't go out as you, as you wish to, you know, you, you just have to, there's, there are many rules you have to respect. Uh, there's some couvre-feu, so after eight o'clock you have to be in your room and it was very strict. So in, in this sense, it helped me to fulfill all my, my engagements. So of course I had to study, I had my lessons. My oboe lessons, my uh, solfege lessons, my analyze lessons, my écriture lessons. And of course, I had still to go to school. So I had to go every morning at the Lycée Racine, which is next to Saint-Lazare. And I had to to do my baccalauréat. Uh, and I was in a scientific baccalauréat because I, I loved maths and physics and uh, chemistry. So um, it was quite tough because, of course, um, I mean, there was no time to think about, uh, oh my God, I'm in a new city, what I'm gonna do, it, 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 I had to, I basically had to do it. So I, I wasn't, there, had, there was no time to think. So I left home, started the thing, and bam, I had to go. It was kind of a nonstop stuff. So um, in a way it was good for me that it was so full, that the schedule was very tough. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when you study 
obviously you have to you have to work very hard and you have to push yourself to your limits and that was when maybe one of my best years basically the one with the baccalaureate when i was 16 17 because um it was full of adventures and at the same time it was very structured so i had a good routine it was actually very healthy for me talk to us about how your career evolved after that well, let's start from there again. So from Paris, uh, it went quite fast. So I did my baccalaureate, so what we call A-levels. I don't know how you call those in the United States, but basically it's called baccalaureate. I was 17, and um, right after this, I did uh, I did an audition in Stuttgart in the radio. There was a job. It was a job from Lajos Lenches. And uh, I remember David coming up to me at the beginning of the year in September saying, hey, uh, Philippe, there's a job opening uh, it's kind of a good job and you know, you should do, you should start doing auditions. You, you've never done auditions. So maybe it's a good start to, you know, send your application and see how it goes. And uh, I was, you know, I just get, got out of school and I, I didn't have the time to study. So, uh, you know, I was talking to my mom about, it. I was saying, I don't want to get a job. I don't want to apply for a job. I want to study. I want to have fun. I want to, I mean, fun. I want to, you know, go to the maximum of my possibilities and, you know, and use the time to learn, experience, you know, make mistakes, but also, I mean, go through basically normal student life. And um, still, I did the I did the audition because, you know, my mom said, yeah, no, you should go. You, you applied now. And David said it was a good thing. So I applied for that job. And I think because I had no stress at all, I paid very well. And I got that job. Wow. So, um, so basically, the study time was kind of half over. So I had to move back. I mean, I didn't move back. I kept my apartment in Paris. So I moved out of the internet and I got another apartment. And I stayed in that apartment half of the time of the year. And I continued my studies. And the other half of the year was basically, um, you know, fulfilled with the schedule of the orchestra. So I started my trial in Stuttgart. And I was, I think I was 17, 18. And, um, yeah, so they are starting being professional, basically. But uh, st- studies were still going on. So I had still two more years of studies uh, at the same time. So, yeah, I took a lot, the plane, the, the train, the TGV, how we call it in France. Uh, it was, yeah, so that's where it started. And um, since then, I basically stayed in Stuttgart. I tried other things, but... Um, Mostly, I stayed in Stuttgart, so I still la- I live in Stuttgart, and um, um, I tried to develop my career from there. So, which was a good thing because you know when you are very young and you're pushed into there, it's like being in a jungle. You have no idea what's happening to you, and you have to be very um, aware first of all, and you have to be very um, patient because also as an oboist, you know it's an instrument that requires lots of patience and um, stability and uh, some days go well some days don't go well but you still have to continue and you have to trust yourself so I'm very grateful that I could start very young with that job you won a job as a 17 year old (laughs) and what was that what was that uh learning curve like uh well i mean first of all getting the result that i got the job was a big shock for me i remember i came my father was waiting in the car (laughs) i was um i got got out of it and i said i you know i knocked at the door and he said okay can we go back home and i said dad we have to stay because i just won the job so we have to do something and um yeah, we were all very shocked. They came back home and none could not believe it. Like, oh my God, what are we going to do? You are in Paris. So I said, well, yeah, here you, here you go. I mean, that's it. You wanted me to go and do this, this, this audition, won it. So now, you know, we have to, we have to deal with it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I must say it's, it was, um, I mean, I'm very grateful because my colleagues here are sweethearts. They're really, really nice people and they, they always encourage me, uh, even in difficult moments. Uh, and they they were always very supportive. So it was, um, of course, the trial year was very stressful because you, it's, it was a new country for me also, Germany, although my grandmother's German, but I'm, you know, I've never lived there. So it was new, new kind of a new language, not new language, but um, different language. And, you know, the rehearsals are in a different language. So you need to, need to focus. It costs energy. Um, it's tough, of course, tough. Um, but I had a great time, and I think I learned most of my 
skills in orchestra there because um, the younger you are, the faster they go to the brain and the faster mm-hmm. you can you can deal with them. So uh, actually, it was great. Um, I was I was really had a great time. You won the principal oboe job there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, principal oboe. Yeah. So what did you well, learn about you, being a principal yeah. oboist? Well, you learn many things. Uh, first of all, you learn to stay at your at your place. So you learn teamwork. That's the first thing I would say. Um, in France, you know, we are pushed very much to play uh, solo pieces, concertos, which is also a good thing. Of course, I'm not criticizing at all the the, the method of teaching, and not at all. But it's true that orchestra playing is not really the main the main subject you're learning in uh, in the conservatoire. We don't do so many orchestra excerpts. We don't do, uh, it's a different approach. And of course, uh, you know, in an orchestra job, you need to, you require different, many qualities. Of course, you have to be solistic in some moments, but you have to be, first of all, you are part of a team and you are a leader of this team. And I think I learned very well how to balance it. So to be, to blend very well with the others, to have this kind of, this chameleon capacity of, you know, mixing sounds together to make one entity and to to make you know to create an identity basically to your orchestra and um and stick out of this when you need to so when you need to to fulfill your principal oboe duty as a soloist also in a way you have to you have to show how to stick out so i also learned a lot about projection volume sound wise how you create lots of sound i mean in a way how you project lots of sound and how you can create colors and also you learn a lot to listen to other groups of instruments so it was it was fantastic to listen to the strings learn lots of scores and um yeah i mean it's fantastic if you if you put many ingredients together and it makes a fantastic recipe this is the same in orchestra so you have to be able everybody has to be connected and i think um those qualities were the most important for me at that time I'm being a total call hog right now. I just have so many questions for you. And Jackie's being very sweet to to let me ask. No, go for it. (laughs) I was sitting here thinking about what I was doing as a 17-year-old, and it was not winning principal jobs in fabulous European orchestras. So So you mentioned learning about projection and developing different sound colors. And we have a lot of listeners who are students. Could you talk to us more about that, about, you know, get into the details about projection and finding different sound colors? Well, uh, first of all, you have to... You have to imagine them. So you have to have a, a, a clear vision of what you want to do. Sometimes, of course, there are things that appear on the moment, and that's what's music beautiful about, because you can just, you never know what's going to happen. In some concerts, you have some kind of inspiration that brings you somewhere you've, you haven't even experienced at home, you know, practicing. So this is important also, but you need, of course, a plan, some kind of plan. When you go in concerts or in rehearsals, of course, you need to know, first of all, you need to know the text, I would say. This is, this is what I always learned also from Maurice at the after my conservatoire time is to really respect the text and uh, be trustful to the to what the composer wanted because in fact it's the music of the composer. So this is the first thing you do. And then you have to put, of course, your ingredients into it. And I would say that the first thing you need to do is to have a great imagination. So you need to imagine those colors. You need to you need to taste them somehow before you play. If they're not there before you play somehow, I have always I had always problems to 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 deal with it because you know I had an I had a let's say I had a color in my head I don't know or some kind of taste or a, a picture image and um, before I would play I would I would start on this and then somehow it evolves I don't know but the the first image was there then of course I mean more technically on the oboe you can play with many kinds of stuff you can play on on um, air speed, air focus, air opening, air whatever. I mean, everything has to do with the air because you know we're a wind instrument, so the air is number one. Um, from there, there are many. I don't. I don't want to say schools because it's wrong. I mean, every every oboe player has his own school. Every oboist has his own school. I would say because we all play so differently, which is a, why the oboe is a fantastic instrument. 
but we all have different morphologies. So my body is different than from, I don't know, Eugene Isotop's body or from John Forello's body or from Lulu's body. So my reaction to the instrument is different. So uh, with my capacity of playing with my air, I would be able to do some different kinds of stuff. And let's say other people will be able to do other kinds of stuff. So projection, maybe it has to do with resonance. I like to sing a lot, for example, in the morning, you know, taking a shower, blah, blah, I like to sing. And or and the oboe is a very human voice instrument in a way. It's, I find it's very approached to, you know, haute contre, some kind of, you know, this kind of uh, high men, um, high men voices. And I, I, I'm not saying I'm trying to imitate this, but I, it, very, it inspires me a lot. This, this very warm color, but with lots of, Obertones and uh, and also of course this this uh, this like this masculine uh, lower harmonics. So yeah. maybe I try to approach this. And um, the projection has a lot to do maybe with also how you how you focus in the instrument. Um, many say you need lots of opening to project because you need a, a very wide capacity you know whatever you can imagine it can be up in the head it can be in the in the neck it can be in the you know but in fact for oboe you need you need a projection you need a, a very fine focus mm-hmm. so to think too wide is maybe also problematic i would say you need to to concentrate the air because the opening of the oboe is very small of course we have this reed and the reed is super small and the, so the amount of air that the reed allows to go through is very small. So you need to maximize the capacity of the reed with this kind of projection. So the more you focus, the more you you concentrate on this tiny opening, I think the more projection you would get. You are the winner of all of the competitions. Um, <laughs> uh, you've been including uh, Jolay Fox and ARD International Music Competition, and I would love to hear some about your experience in competing as a soloist and in being successful and what you learned through these experiences. Oh my God. Well, yeah. Okay. This is going to be a long one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're here for it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, well, for those who know me, um, I love challenges. So I love challenges because in a way this is what identifies my personality. I would say I love to push myself to the limits. I've always loved to experience new things. I've always loved to to see how far I can go. So that's why I did competitions because, in a way, um, they reveal, <laughs> they push you to the most extreme um, emotions you can probably go through in your life because you can be very excited at some moments and you can be very depressed at some others. And the oboe is even more. Um, encouraging those emotions because it's a very resistant instrument. So in a way, it was a very um, bipolar experience, let's say. They, they, had, they had many good moments. They were also very bad moments. Um, but they were necessary for me. I had to learn from those. Um, of course, people are going to say, yeah, Philippe, you're very successful. You won all of those competitions, blah, blah, blah. But in fact... Um, the most important thing is what I've learned from them. The prices are very beautiful. They they look very nice on a piece of paper, but they're not they're not really what what it means. A competition is uh, the most important thing is the whole process. I'd say the the lower part of the iceberg is the preparation. This is what basically makes you as an as a musician after or what you want to learn from a from a from a competition is the preparation is not necessarily the competition itself because you can be in a bad day you know you can prepare like crazy you can be super ready you can be the best oboist on the planet let's say and you can go to a competition and you know have a very bad day i don't know a cough or you know or something and uh, uh and then you you just don't play well and you don't pass it doesn't make you a less better instrumentist in a way so you need lots of luck in a competition of course and um you need to be in a good day of course and um, you have to be prepared. That's maybe the most important thing, the preparation. If you're very well prepared and you know you're prepared, 
um, even if you have stress, um, you can still go quite confident on stage because you're prepared. So I think where I succeeded a lot is this preparation. I must say I was super prepared. I mean, I, I never left anything, you know, just up from the stars. It was just, um, it was very consequent working. I was also uh, working out as also, you know, training for, you know, physically. So I was jogging a lot, cycling a lot, swimming a lot. So that physically, first of all, I would be very strong to go through those two weeks of competition. Then, of course, I tried to solidify my technique. So uh, I did lots of scales and practice every day. I made myself a plan so I could um, have a routine. I was very strict with that. I also had strict hours to go to bed. I would say I never go late to bed. Um, no alcohol, of course. I mean, you know, I was I was very dedicated. I was sacrificing a lot, but um, in the end, for me, it worked very well. So I I did it on Prague, which was not it was the first competition, and I saw that it worked. So I said, okay, let's try the second one. So I did Tokyo. It worked also. Then I went to Gilet Fox, which was in Birmingham in England, I think, at the time, which worked also. And then I did all of them at the end, and with the same kind of technique of preparation. So. This constant brings confidence because you repeat things and they work. So your psychological aspect of, you know, also your relationship with the instrument evolves in a very positive way. So you gain confidence and you gain, um, well, you, you know, you push yourself to much further limits because in a way you can say, okay, this is working. How far can I go? And, uh, and this working process was incredible for me. This was the most rich, the richest um, experience I had with these competitions. Um, the success after that, of course, it's, uh, you know, it gives you a smile on your face that um, doesn't bring, it doesn't, it didn't make me as a person. Those competitions made me as a person now, and this is for me very important. Mm. So um, I would say the, you know, it's, a, it's like an iceberg, as I'd say, the, the lower part of the iceberg, which is the biggest one, is the preparation. Mm-hmm. how you prepare how you focus and the higher part is you know the is the lucky part it's the when you go to the competition and you do your best and if it works then Bob's your uncle <laughs> <laughs> oh that's incredible switching gears a little bit but still in line with your adventurous spirit and your um willingness to take on a challenge. You recently were appointed as the principal oboist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Congratulations, Philippe. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Another challenge, yeah. Yeah, we're yeah. American. You know what's coming. To. Yeah, here it comes. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, I was counting the number of questions before that one. So, because this was the chair of Tabuto, the father of American oboe playing, your appointment yeah. with the Philadelphia Orchestra elicited a divided response. Uh, were you were you aware of that, and what was your reaction to it? And is there anything that you would like to say to our American listeners who only know you as the new principal oboe of the Philadelphia Orchestra? Uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> So, um, yes, of course, uh, I know what people have been writing <laughs> in the last few weeks and months. Um, I know there are many questions, many, uh, uh, there are some excitements, but there are also some fears. Um, I'm very aware about this, and I am also very aware about what this chair means. I, I know who was there, and um, I know it's, I must say I know him very well because Tabuto was French. He's studying in Paris, and uh, we know him very well in France. Um, we, you know, uh, we have a big knowledge about what's happened also in Philadelphia, in Paris, for instance. And so we, we know kind of, you know, we know a lot about Marcel Tabuto, of course. So I am totally aware of, of, of what kind of chair it is. And uh, first of all, I would say that I, um, of course, I'm delighted to be appointment, appointed at this, uh, at this position. And uh, I will try my very best to, to um, try and be at the level of that chair. I mean, I, I'm, I'm absolutely, uh, I'll, you know, I have to, I know I have to push my limits. I have to go to, uh, I have to give my very best to, to, you know, to show to, to everybody that I, I deserve this and that it's, it's okay. I mean, there's, uh, 
you know, winning the audition process is is one thing, but the mo- the biggest part of the job is to come up from September on. So, and I, I'm totally aware about this, and I'm totally ready for it. So, um, I totally accept the criticisms. Uh, I know uh, some of them maybe uh, uh, were kind of harsh. Uh, some were very excited and very supportive. But I accept all of them because, you know, music has no borders. Music is an international and a universal language. So in a way, um, criticism is part of it. And uh, uh, I have no problems with, with those who are absolutely not agreeing on, on, that, on that matter. It's not a problem. Uh, it's, it's my job now to convince them that maybe they, I have something to say and that I will do it in a way that it will... You know, it will continue the legendary chair of this orchestra. That it will continue the the success of this uh, amazing oboe group, and that um, I'll be able to learn from them. Of course, I want to learn. I want to learn from this uh, this way of playing. I don't know if we can call it an American style of playing, or if it's tabutos playing, or right. I don't know if there's even nowadays a school. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very difficult question to answer. I want to say that I'm interesting about I'm interested about the music. I really want to do great music, and um, if it's going to be that kind of read or if this is going to be that kind of oboe, um, I mean, don't worry. Uh, I'm going to play many stuff <laughs> and many different things, and I think people won't notice so much difference. I mean, they will notice differences maybe in the way in taste and maybe in musical, you know. I mean, uh, but in terms of aesthetic and what the orchestra needs to function and the whole section i'm very aware what's what i can do and um i've played already with them of course and um uh, i'm sure i'm very sure and i can assure everybody in america that i'm a very open person and i'm i'm ready to get uh, anything like uh, criticism or but i'm ready to discuss i mean i'm I'm super open to discuss about all of those things because, as I said, it's a, it's a, music has no borders, and we need to we need to stick to that. We need to. I think we can all learn from each other because we have the most fascinating instrument ever. Everybody sounds so different, and in a way, um, I've been listening many recordings of uh, Mr. Ferrillo lately, Mr. Isotov, uh, Dick Woodhams, of course. Uh, I love Lipsy. Um, and also um, uh, from Mac, I mean, and also Delancey, many things of Delancey have been, and I've also read now the book of Tabuto. I mean, um, they are, I'm, I'm prepared. <laughs> I could just say that I'm prepared and that I'm, I'm very happy to meet them all and to discuss about it also if there are some issues because uh, that's why we're, we're there for. We're there to talk about music and, and how we can bring this at the highest point possible in Philadelphia and uh, for the Philadelphia Orchestra. So I think we That's... just need to remember that music has no borders. And in this way, um, uh, whatever uh, way I'm going to play, I'm always going to do it in the interest of the orchestra. So I, so I, I can help the orchestra going further. I can be part of this history and I can help this history and and I, I'm not there to finish anything. I'm not there to break anything, not at all. I'm there to try and continue it and maybe to make it better or to do it with what I can, I can bring to the, maybe I'll, you know, maybe they won't like it at all. Maybe they will not give me any kind of, uh, you know, they won't keep me. It, it's also possible, you know, that I go there and somehow it doesn't work at all. I mean, we have to be, we have to be open to any kind of situation. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult subject to thematize somehow. Uh, how do you say thematize? No, it's kind of, uh, yeah. Maybe I said already too much. <laughs> no, I, it was lovely, and it's such a generous answer and a beautiful approach, and um, really indicative of a growth mindset, I think. And I also think that you know, when we're sitting behind a computer, we forget that there's another human being on the other side of the computer. So I hope that, you know, as you begin your first season with Philadelphia, we can be as generous. And when nobody ever has to agree, <laughs> that's part of being a musician and being an artist. But I hope that we can be kind and generous um, 
Oh, absolutely. We, I mean, there's no, um, I think there's no right way of playing. There are many right ways of playing. And um, maybe, I mean, with kind of the experience I have, I, I, I can assure everybody that um, my capacity of adapting is big. Um, I've played in many orchestras around the world and it always really well functioned. So in this sense, um, maybe I can I can achieve it. I, I hope I can achieve it. I'll give my best. Uh, but um, yeah, I'll. I hope so too. I'll try. I'll, I'll <laughs> try. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this position will will change everything. I don't. I mean, who knows? This is why also it's so exciting, and this is why maybe um, I would like to invite everybody in America to just wait and see. It's like just give me the chance. Wait and see. If uh, if I can't prove it on stage, um, then uh, I'll you know I give you full power to criticize and to say, oh look at this this chunk of, of notes and blah blah. What is this thing? And uh, you know it's not not a problem. But just give me the chance and let's meet on stage in Philly and then we'll talk about it later. I think this is this is the message I want to. I want to give them because uh, I want like I would like also to, them to meet me maybe as a person, not only as a as a pure oboist who studied uh, in Europe. Maybe you know we have we have so much in common, and I think we can we can we, you know we can share so much. And um, I'm 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 so happy to meet all of these new people. It's going to be so so great, so exciting. And if they don't like it, then that's it. It's okay. I I, I can deal with it. No problem. <laughs> Sorry, just wanted to say that. No, that's great. Yeah. Well, and I think another question that um, many American oboists had was um, if you plan to take students in the United States and um, perhaps your approach to pedagogy, will it be as universal or have you given any thought to that? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, I just told you before, I I read uh, many books. One of them was uh, the one of uh, Tabuto. Um, and I must say, uh, <laughs> there may, <laughs> there are many, many, many uh, similar equality things between the way we, we, we learn things in Paris and the way he was teaching in Curtis, uh, of course. So, um, I'm totally aware of, of those kind of things, I must say. Uh, of course, I don't know everything. I, I think nobody knows everything, but, uh, I can learn also. I can learn from you guys there in America. And uh, I'm very open to this. Maybe you have stuff to bring to me. I should do things better in my playing that I still don't do now. Maybe you can learn stuff from me. So um, what I'm trying to do right now is to to get the maximum knowledge I can about what I don't know yet, what ha- what's happening there. And also in the read making, for example, you would be quite surprised, but... Um, I'm already doing many tests, uh, many experiments, um, and scraping is not European, I can tell you. So, <laughs> I mean, European. Uh, what? So, um, I'm very interested about this. I think um, I'm very open to um, to continue this 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 way of. Uh, of I'm not going to teach in a very universal way. I don't think so. I'm going to teach in the way. I think it's best to make a student better. If it's if it's going to be this kind of training or if it's going to be this kind of training, I don't think it's such an issue. It's, it's, the student can play the way he wants. I'm going to try and, if it would happen one day that I would have to help someone in America who wants to take a lesson or something, um, I would not ask him to change anything. Or he, that person can play whatever, whatever they want. But... Um, I think the most important part is the music. And I think Tabuto in his book is talking about the music, the way and the process. It's his process. I can't say that there's one way. There are so many ways, but they all join themselves. And it's my job to convince uh, that, that the way of playing, first of all, suits, that it's okay, and that you, you're happy with that. And I can, I can bring... Uh, brilliant music and great magical moments in the concert hall. That's my first job. And then if one day, really, if one day we would have to talk about some teaching stuff, then it's my job to 
to learn and to get as much knowledge as possible so I can I can join and I can I can understand first of all I can understand what the process how it is and I've already started so um, I, you know at home here I've started I've been doing experiences and uh, I've been reading a lot so um, I'm, I'm getting ready yeah I'm getting ready prepared yeah well we know that you are very good at being prepared <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that was here. I don't know if it's going to be the same on the other side of the Atlantic, but well, you know, uh-huh. give it a try. Give it a, give it a try. <laughs> It'll be a new adventure, that's for sure. For sure. Would you tell us a favorite memory that you have of a performance or being on the stage? And if you happen to think of it, maybe also an embarrassing memory? Yes. Uh, well, the very good moments on stage, uh, I mean, basically every day is great. I mean, I love to play every day and uh, even to rehearse at home. I love it. Uh, I, I love to play uh, my instrument. So, of course, it's very difficult to find one moment in particular, but maybe the most beautiful moment I've seen was um, Seiji Ozawa's birthday in Japan. Wow. Uh, when he, Yeah, he was, he got 80 and... Uh, he was when was that it was maybe four or five years ago i can't remember anyway it was his birthday and we were playing on that day a concert uh, in his festival in matsumoto in the summer and uh, everybody was crying it was incredible he was just so he was at i mean of course he's getting older and he was sick and it was it's tough for him but uh, the moment he was on the podium and he was conducting for me there was nothing more beautiful than that it was just incredible he was a, he was at the peak of his um of his artistry of his uh, humanity it was incredible and it, that concert everybody was just in tears it was just incredible so maybe this concert was the the biggest memory for me um uh, the second the second one maybe was with yannick yannick Mezizega was with the chamber orchestra of europe we made a, a recording of um La Clemenza di Tito, that was about three years ago in Baden-Baden. And uh, there was just one area with Joyce Di Donato, and this was just like, it was incredible. The the, the music making and the the orchestra flexibility and the the, the sounds and the magic, it was, uh, I stopped playing. I I, I hope they didn't take that for the recording, but I stopped playing. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to take a cry Uh, break? Yeah, exactly. A cry break. That's, that's how you call it in the United States. Okay, it was no, a cry that's break. just yeah. what I'm calling um, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is this is incredible. So that was a, that was another magical moment, I must say. Um, yes, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Di Donato. She's uh, unbelievable. This, this uh, yeah, in his personality, it's, it's incredible personality. Yannick also was just fabulous. On the, I mean, he's always fabulous, but that moment he was extra fabulous. So yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> And maybe the most embarrassing moment that you think there there were some. Okay, well, it was one lesson in Paris in the Conservatoire, and I must say I was um, I was not prepared because I had too 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 many home too much homework to do. I think, and um, I could not prepare myself very well, and I had to play Mozart concerto for David, my professor at the time, and it was a very very bad lesson. It was terrible. I played like. Um, I'm not going to say the word, but it was bad. It's very, very bad. <laughs> and um, and he was uh, he didn't insult he didn't insult me. Even he did he gave a a much wiser answer. He said, um, uh, "Go home, something like this. I don't have time to lose with some stuff like this. I think I didn't have the chance to play the whole thing through. I mean, it was a disaster. It was it was really bad. Um, that was a very embarrassing moment. And I think also. Um, there was I had a solo concert once. It was Martinou Martino Oboe Concerto somewhere, maybe in Stuttgart with my, my orchestra. And I had a uh, I was I was playing by heart, and I had a a memory drop. I mean, there was like nothing happened for like two two lines, and I had no Oops. idea why. So I was <laughs> yeah in the third yeah in the in the third movement there was a oh yes that's why because there's a new version of the concerto that came up a few years ago for the Prague competition I think it was 2008 it was a, a new version from uh, Guy Porat and Maurice they re-edited the the, the the edition of that concerto because there was some 
uh, mistakes and uh, many things were missing. And in the last movement, there's a little variation um, that, that is not written in the first edition before. And that was added. And I tried to learn that by memory, I remember. And um, I think I completely screwed the thing up. The first group of notes I've screwed up. And, um, and, and you know, it's like it's a, it's a cyclic thing. So the, the, the moment you start it and you don't get it right, it's impossible to get back in because it's uh, like uh-huh. it's an average going up and then it's going down and going up and going down and going down. And it's, it was super logical. And I started it completely the wrong way. So I so two lines. And I, and I, I remember I was, I was looking at the conductor like who was it? Who was the conductor? I can't remember. And he was just staring at me. He's like, well, you know, just like touch his back. And he was, you know, yeah. Oh my God. That was a nightmare. It was, a it was like, and the worst thing was this, I was super embarrassed. And then I went back to the colleagues and after the concert I said, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they said, what? What? Something happened? Sir? Really? No? Said, yeah, I mean, come on. I, 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 I literally screwed up two lines and nothing was there. I said, oh, no, didn't hear anything. Oh, it was fine for me. It was good. There's no problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, I wasn't really I, I mean, paying attention, so. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I mean, I know Martineau is very, very dense and it's uh, compactly written and, you know, of course, someday. But then that passage, it was quite thin. I mean, it was, you know, you could really hear the oboe and, uh, oh my God, that was terrible. Yeah, bad memory, bad memory, <laughs> bad, bad, bad. <laughs> I have kind of a two-part question. Um, We like to ask our guests about how they deal with performance anxiety and or nervousness. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But we've been doing this podcast for three years. And I have noticed that our European guests seem to have, I don't know about no nerves, but a different relationship And I know that your lessons happen in a group setting. And I wonder if you feel like um, the group approach to lessons and instruction helped uh, or changed your relationship with performance anxiety uh, as a soloist and in orchestral playing. Um, A very good question. So I'm going to say in Paris, we didn't have necessary group lessons. Um, we had our individual lessons. Uh, we can listen to the others, but we were not playing in group, um, which I I wouldn't say it's a shame because probably there's no time to do it. You need to you need to focus a lot and to um, to find it, of course, to find the time for it. Um, but what I do now with my class, with my students in Germany, we do um, we do group lessons. Uh, for instance, we do a, a bit of chamber music, of course, sometimes time when we have time. And, but we do every morning intonation um, exercises. So I basically transcripted the Bach chorales for four oboes. And we check intonation, for example, in the morning. So we do that for about half an hour. We go through two or three chorales and uh, everybody has to basically play a different line. So we, we do a turnover, basically. Um, so you get like a class atmosphere and also you, you get people used to play with each other. So you, you get out a bit of the fear. I can notice this, that there's a, there's, the fear is getting out. So I don't know if this gets out the stress when you have to do an audition or, or performance, but at least when you come in the class, of course, you have to be prepared and there's this nervousness when you have the individual lesson, but still, um, I think uh, students feel more confident to come and to play because they feel also more, maybe more accepted in a way. I don't know if it's the right word, but um, they always, they look forward to play with each other. So this is nice. And we also do it in, in scales. So no, this is not such a fun part, but <laughs> less fun than the intonation classes. But the, the scale classes is for me very important because every morning we just warm up basically all together. And we sit in a circle and then I, I'm part of the circle, of course. And we just play one after the other scales. So, and they basically repeat it one after the other. So we take a different tempo every day or we take a different tonality or we do thirds or fourths or quints or whatever. And then um, in a way you still, you have this class atmosphere. So you have this group exercise, but you have to, of course, if you screw up, then you're kind of, you know, I screwed up issue i mean so you have to you have to be prepared so in a way you still you have to deal a bit with stress on that exercise which is good too 
Um, so um, I got this um, inspiration from the horn class in Paris, from uh, André Casalet, because I, I know they were doing this in Paris, and I, I, I knew that the horn class in Paris was very famous and uh, had a great atmosphere because of this also. It was very strict, and uh, but everybody was telling me, yeah, the horn class is a fantastic atmosphere, and uh, we all understand each other so well. It's like, what, uh, what the heck is going on there? Why are they just, you know, why are they going on along so well with each other? And um, I think it's this, it's this, this group thing, this group lesson, this group spirit, this team spirit. And I wanted to build this also with my class and I, it works very well. Um, and I know sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable, the scale issue, I know it's a bit uncomfortable, but it works very well. And then the last one, uh, the last group lesson which I do is um, sight reading because in France, we do lots of sight reading, and in Germany, there's no sight reading at all, which is, I don't, I don't understand why. This is, uh, um, I think it's it's so important. It should be part of the, the system. So I pick up time to time, I don't know, an opera, or um, every time it's something, it's a new piece, and um, the students have maybe like 30 seconds to read it through. It's maybe one or two pages, and they just have to play, bam, that's it. And whatever happens, they just have to play. And I know this is also very stressful, but in the end, it's still, uh, even if you make mistakes, you force yourself to continue. It also brings you into this mental, um, uh, this mental state of, I have to go through it. I have to go through it. No matter what, I have to go through it. And in, in, in a way, it, it can help you on, on stage for concerts if you're a little bit nervous or if you have to do an audition, it's like, okay, whatever, I have to go. And um, basically, I'm trying to put them in the worst conditions possible mm -hmm. um, so that when they come on stage, they feel a bit safer. You see what I mean? So it's um, mm -hmm. so you go through the most, it's like you, work, you wake up at two in the morning with the crappiest read ever and you have to play Strauss through. This is like, it will never happen. If you play in Carnegie or Strauss, you will have a good read and you will be prepared. So if, you see what I mean? So if you can manage w waking up at two in the morning, playing with a crappy read Strauss, you're going to manage to do it uh, when you're going to play. I don't know, nobody plays in Carnegie Hall. Or, I don't know, Heinz Holliger plays maybe in Carnegie Hall. But if someone has to play in a very important hall, uh, Strauss, uh, you're very prepared and you have a good read, then probably you're going to make it because you've made it at home at two in the morning. So in a way, um, you, are, you are conditioning your brain to go through the worst thing ever before doing it. So basically you are minimalizing the... The, the stressful situation after. And this helped me a lot, for example. Um, when I trade for competitions, I used to uh, play with the, the, most, the most terrible read ever, uh, play through, I was suffering so much, and uh, I, I, it was not fun at all, but I knew that if I could do it there at that moment in those bad conditions, um, I would be able to do it very well. Uh, on concert mode or on competition mode with a good read and prepared. So, yeah, maybe those two aspects, maybe the, the, the group lesson thing and also the pushing yourself to the limit, kind of over the limit uh, in, a, in a very bad way. So you experience terrible things before going on the key moment. Yeah. I love that. Train hard, fight easy. Exactly. That's it. <clears throat> exactly. Philippe, we could talk to you for three more hours, but you don't have time for that. So I would like to ask you one last question. Uh, what advice? Uh, we are all, all we all at home here at the moment. We are at the moment. You can't you can't move here. You have to stay home. There's no way you can move. Oh, so here you go. Yeah, yeah. So here you go. Yeah. What advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, first of all, it's worth the trip. So it's a, it's a tough one. Uh, you, need, um, you need patience. You need discipline. But if you are motivated and you want to do it, um, go for it. I mean, there's no, nobody has limits. I think the only thing you can do is, is experience and uh, go as far as you can. And give your best. Always just give your best. You have to give your best. So uh, giving your best, it means you have to be prepared. You have to practice. You have to, you know, sometimes you have to really, um, you have to go through difficult moments. But if you survive those, 
with all of those sacrifices um, and you're motivated, you, you're going to make it. There's no, I can't imagine someone who's not going to make it. But of course, you have to, you have to be ready to work like crazy. You have to, you know, and you have to maybe sacrifice a part of your life. I must say I sacrificed my study life. I didn't really have a study life because I was already in the job and, uh, and I missed that, of course, but I don't regret it one second. And at some point also when I was younger, when I was 14, 15, when I started playing the oboe, I remember that sometimes I didn't go out to meet my friends. I was practicing instead hours and hours, making reads hours and hours just to to be the best. I, I always wanted to try and be the best, the best of myself. And um, I knew that I had to push myself because... Um, I think it's, of course, 5% of talent. You need talent. Of course, you need to be talented 5%. But 95% of the whole thing is work, um, is sacrifice. It's, um, but it gives you so much joy after. I mean, now I'm enjoying it so much. It's uh, such a great life. And uh, I'm so happy I can do it. And I can I can live from it. And um, I can embrace it every day without, uh, you know, making, you know, having some, how do you say, some thoughts about about it. I mean, I'm not regretting anything I did. So, of course, if you really want this, uh, you have to go for it, but you have to go for it one million percent. I mean, this is like, you, you can see Djokovic or someone like that, or Nadal, who's going to, you know, like these big tennis players, or even like, I don't know, Messi, or I don't know, what, what the guys in America, I don't know, from Durant or, or I don't know, uh, Joel Embiid, if we're talking about Philadelphia, I'm sure that these guys... Uh, these top athletes, they had to make many, many sacrifices to get at this level in the NBA or in the tennis ATP tour or as a football player. And you, for sure, they all have talent. But I'm, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty certain that what makes the difference with all the others is the hard work. And um, if you want to be up there on the top and you want to enjoy everything and have no, you know, basically have no limits later, um, you need to discipline yourself. You need to, but if you, of course, if you have the motivation, there's no, there's no worries about that. You just have to be extra motivated. And sometimes you have to push yourself so far that you cannot anymore. And this is a good sign. So you, you know, it's like pushing the limit even more every day. So at the end you have, you explore ranges that you would maybe not explored if you didn't go there before. So, yeah. You have to go sometimes to extremes in order to do incredible things. Philippe, tendre, thank you so much. I just wanted to say your last name one more time because you complimented me on my pronunciation. So I'm very proud of that. Right, but thank exactly. You so yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it. It was so well pronounced. It was amazing. Oh, thank wow. You. Yeah. <laughs> because in Germany, they don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't get it. In Germany, they don't get it. I mean, you know, France and Germany is like, it's on the border. It's like just next door. Basically, you step outside in France and it's like, Philippe, tendre, uh, tendre. But uh, they don't get it. They just, it's like, no, it's tendre, tendre, tendre. But it's fine. It's okay. Sometimes they even forget an E. Oh my God. You know, Philippe, like the German way with two Ps. Without e. Oh my God. They just, they, they, it's, a, it's a catastrophe. Kata, catastrophe, as we say in German. Eine richtige Katastrophe. Thank you so much for talking with us. This was an absolute Thank pleasure. You. And Thank we you. cannot it was wait my to pleasure. release this interview. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find us on social media and listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts, all streaming platforms, and YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment. We always love hearing from you. Galit, who do we got coming up on the next episode? Next episode, we are talking with the great Peter Kolke, Associate Professor of Bassoon at Vanderbilt University. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.